cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency execs like to say security is so important they put it in their name twice. Well, now that same rationale is the impetus behind CISA's first-ever cybersecurity strategic plan for 24 to 26. Security is so important, CISA says, it needs its own strategic plan to position itself to better handle the ever-changing cyber challenges. Eric Goldstein, CISA's Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity, tells Federal News Network's Jason Miller about how the new cyber strategy plan provides a roadmap for transformative change. The plan outlines a series of objectives and goals, in particular three goals focused on addressing immediate threats, hardening the terrain, and driving security at scale, but also for the first time includes real measures of effectiveness so that we can show not just that we are doing the work, but that our work is yielding actual security outcomes. And we think that's one of the real innovations in this plan that we're really proud of. Is this new for CISA to have a cybersecurity strategic plan? Or is this something that you've had previously three years ago, and you were just kind of building on and evolving and morphing? Or was this, again, a new idea? We have really invested at CISA over the past two years in documenting and being transparent about our strategic planning as an agency. And so we released our first ever agency-wide strategic plan uh, last year, and we are now releasing our first ever cybersecurity strategic plan to really be very clear about how we prioritize our work and the outcomes that we are seeking to achieve as we continue to grow and mature as an agency. All right, so brand new plan. Uh, what was the impetus for it beyond the fact this is what CISA does, the cybersecurity? You do a lot more than that. But why this focus on cybersecurity? What really drove this decision to say, hey, we need a strategic plan within our strategic plan? Part of the impetus really was the new model manifested in the national cybersecurity strategy. And as we worked with partners uh, across the federal government, the private sector, led, of course, by our colleagues in the office of the national cyber director, you know, we really said, you know, this agency, CISA, is going to have to fundamentally adapt to a new model where we focus on shifting the burden of cybersecurity to those who can bear it, where we focus focus on driving prioritized investment in the security measures that reduce the most risk. And we focus on really deeply understanding threat activity and vulnerabilities in this country in a way that informs how we drive security for products and enterprises. And all of that requires some fundamental shifts in the work we do, how we prioritize our resources, and how we work with our stakeholders. And that's something that we felt was appropriate to really codify in a strategic plan and and that we could then reflect transparently to our stakeholders so we can move on this journey together. There's plenty in this plan to go into, and we'll put a link on federalnewsnetwork.com so folks can find it easy. But let me maybe hone in a few areas, and I want to go to Objective 2.3, which is the cyber capabilities to fill gaps. And this one really kind of drives home an area that really I think is is focused on, in many ways, the federal government and the federal agencies. You, one of the areas that you want to you know, measure of effectiveness, increase the percentage of federal civilian agencies adopting CISA directive requirements, increase the number of organizations outside of the FCEB that have adopted applicable requirements in CISA directives. Talk a little bit about that one and why that was uh, one of those that you put out there as a a big objective. 
One of the foundational precepts of this strategy is the fact that organizations, both federally and non-federally, are asked to do an extraordinary amount. Um, and oftentimes, they're asked to do too much. They're, they don't have the resources uh, to access the sort of services they need, uh, or they're unable to determine where to prioritize their scarce resources to most effect. And so CISA is really trying to fill two gaps in that area. The first is, where possible, we're trying to provide uh, affordable, effective commercial shared services that fill gaps for our partners in a scalable way, which is really one of our core focus areas across the federal civilian executive branch. But we also want to help organizations prioritize their resources so when they are spending that scarce security dollar, they're confident that it is on a measure that is driving down the most risk. And that's where our directives come into play. The goal of our binding operational directives and our emergency directives is really to guide investment towards the most important security activities those are, of course, binding for the federal civilian executive branch. So we want to focus on measuring uh, adherence uh, to our directives across the FSEB. But we also know that, that our directives have been extraordinarily impactful uh, in also driving investment and activity across non-federal partners. And that's something that we want to be able to measure as well. And one of the big measurements when you talk about it is, is increased percentage. So imagine you have some current statistics saying current adoption is 89% or 62% or whatever the number is, do you have that starting point? And then you're going to, okay, we have, or, you know, goal one and after a year will be 5% bigger and then goal two will be 10% bigger. Is that the way you have it laid out kind of maybe internally as well? We are really excited about the measures of effectiveness uh, in this in this plan because it really does put down a marker that we have to show quantifiable outcomes for our stakeholders and for national cybersecurity. Some of the of the measures of effectiveness uh, in this plan are ones where we already have data. So, for example, our progress in driving mitigation of known exploited vulnerabilities across federal networks, our progress uh, for agencies implementing our directive requirements. But some of these measures of effectiveness really are aspirational and reflect the sort of data-driven, outcome-oriented agency that we have to be to effectively serve our stakeholders and the country. And so one of our main efforts uh, over the duration of this plan is going to be to make sure that we have the data and the ability to measure the breadth of measures of effectiveness so we can actually show those outcomes across the board. Eric, I want to shift over to another uh, area of focus. There's plenty to talk to in that one, but the other one is cyber workforce, another big area, uh, Objective 3.3, if you are scoring at home for folks. And this one is an important one because we've talked a lot about the cyber workforce. I think every agency is struggling with this. And and one of your measures of effectiveness is to increase the number of cybersecurity students trained in courses offered by CISA, percentage of cybersecurity courses funded by CISA. Talk a little bit about that one because we know – how important it is, but it's also probably the hardest goal that you have or objective you have. I think that's exactly right. You know, we are really fortunate uh, to now have uh, a published uh, national cyber workforce strategy uh, to guide our direction uh, in this space, as as noted in our in our strap plan. You know, this is an area where CISA needs to be really focused and disciplined in the ad, in the aspect of the workforce challenge that we want to focus on, and we think that increasing the breadth, the availability, and the content of cybersecurity training that is available, particularly. Uh, 
uh, for communities that are currently deeply underrepresented uh, in the cybersecurity workforce is an area where we can really make an impact. And so we look forward to working, for example, with minority-serving institutions, with HBCUs uh, in the years to come to ensure that we are increasing the breadth of availability and access to cybersecurity training that is going to both uh, increase the breadth uh, of the workforce and ensure that we have a workforce that reflects the diversity of our country. The one thing that's not mentioned here, but I imagine it's still a huge priority, is CISA's own workforce and increasing the breadth, depth, training, and the like. Uh, It's not necessarily mentioned specifically, but how do they fit into this? Because I I think one of the big challenges is anytime someone sees, oh, no, a new strategic plan, how is this going to affect me in the workforce? So I think there's probably two questions there, the training, and then, uh, uh, well, is the strategic plan broader effect of the CISA cyber workforce? The execution of this plan is predicated in significant part upon the continued growth and excellence of CISA's own workforce. Uh, Our agency plan, uh, which we released last year, uh, outlines uh, in great rigor uh, how we as an agency intend to invest and advance our own workforce. Uh, But you're absolutely right. That work is is essential to achieving the ambitious goals uh, outlined in the plan. Uh, You know, when we um, um, first released this plan to our workforce, I think there was a lot of excitement uh, about the rigor that we are putting into these outcome-oriented measures. Uh, you know, we have been talking uh, at CISA for the past several years about the fact that across our programs and services, we have to show impact, we have to show outcomes, we have to show risk reduction. Uh, in fact, one of the first things that our director did uh, when she uh, took office uh, is to change uh, our mission state uh, to, to understand, manage, and reduce the nation's cyber and physical risk. And the word reduce there really is absolutely critical. If we are, are not showing the work that we are doing is reducing risk to our country, then we have to do something different. And I think the focus on that aspect in this strategy is really resonating with our workforce as as really one of our North Stars for the years to come. Eric Goldstein, Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, part of Homeland Security, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role 
even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arena. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff. Okay. Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again, because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> d describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the deep South, 
I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. it's, It's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. So yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE, and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today. It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. 
And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.